You're listening to Pastor Jared Ruddy of City Lights Church. In Mark chapter 9, we've been preaching through the book of Mark, as you know. Uh, really very thrilled about this passage this morning because I want to talk um, just for a few moments, or let the scripture, I should say, talk to us about what kind of spirit we are, what kind of spirit we carry. Um, Mark chapter 9, let's read together, starting in verse 33. And they came to Capernaum. And when he, that's Jesus, was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. And he took a child and put it on the midst of them. And taking him in the arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such as a child... And my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but who, who sent me. Now we'll come back to that in just a moment. Second passage, starting in verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, I want you as best as you can to put yourself in the place of the disciples because we have to understand, first, why are they asking this question? Jesus says, why are you arguing with one another? Now, what's interesting about this, and we've shared this before, is that Jesus is not the only person to claim to be Messiah in and around the first century. It's so crucial that you realize that for a handful of reasons. There's about a dozen people who claim to be the Messiah at this first century time. It's important to say that. Why? Because every other so-called messianic movement um, following their leader around this time died and their movement stopped. From this first century time, there is no messianic movement that is still in existence other than Christianity. Uh, It's important to point that out because of this reason, uh, people say, well, well, you know, why do you believe in Jesus or what, you know, what does this look like? Well, Jesus isn't the only person to be, claim to be God. You've ever met that guy? All right, I have. I've met, I've met a handful of people that think, that think they're God, right? You talk, I, I can take, take you a couple places downtown and you'll meet a couple people that think they are the son of God, all right? There's, so Jesus is not the only person to claim this. So what's happening, though, is that Jesus claims to be Messiah, but unlike other messianic figures, he's not just full of this charismatic personality, but he's actually performing signs and wonders and miracles. So now these disciples, Jesus calls these 12 to be with him, are trying to grapple with who this Jesus is. You know, what's his purpose? Why is he here and what is he doing? You know, in their mind, the Messiah wasn't just someone that was going to come and die on the cross. We've seen that a handful of times throughout the book of Mark. Every time Jesus says, I'm going to die, what do the disciples say? What do you mean? They can't figure it out because in their mind, the Messiah was not someone that was going to die on a cross. The Messiah was going to go into Rome, kick out the emperor, set up the kingdom and say, here I am. So when Jesus is talking about death, they can't even traffic in that understanding of what that looks like. I would say that as a Christian church, perhaps we've pendulumed a little bit too far where we have made the kingdom of God almost purely spiritual. So that we focus on the cross almost purely spiritual, not realizing its implications here and now. I'll share that in just a moment. So the disciples are walking and they begin to argue 
And saying, which I love that, first of all, because you kind of just see how obnoxious that really is. They're following Jesus, and they're arguing, I'm the greatest uh, disciple, I'm the greatest apostle. <laughs> like, how, how awesome is it that the scripture shows us that? Here we see 12 of them walking, and they're kind of whispering because Jesus asks them this question, which I love because anytime that God asks you a question, he's not asking because he lacks information, Right? He's asking because he wants you to realize. So the moment Jesus says, why are you arguing? The scripture tells us that they kind of were hush-hush about it. And they say, well, we're arguing about who's the greatest in the kingdom of God. I find that really interesting. Who is the greatest? Jesus takes a small child, brings in the circle. And then he says this. If any of you would be first, he must be last and a servant of all. Jesus tries to recalibrate the understanding of the disciples by saying this, that God's kingdom is not brought by soldiers, but by servants. God's kingdom is not brought by swords. It's brought by service. He doesn't say who would ever would be the first of all would be the one that's got the most dominating personality, who has got the loudest voice, who's the most boisterous person, who's the strongest, the most muscular. He's not saying that the kingdom of God is going to come to the earth through people that look impressive. Like, I know you're all wondering, like me this morning. I know you're struggling with that. You're like, that's how the kingdom of God's going to come is through guys that look as physically intimidating as me. That's how this whole, that's God's hope of the earth rests on me. I know it's kind of a hard paradox. We'll work through that this morning together. That's not the way that this thing works. It doesn't work because somebody is um, incredibly physically appealing or attractive. I got to tell you a funny story. I was preaching in Canada, this like three or four years ago. I was preaching in Toronto. And Isaiah 53 tells us, and I made a very big mistake. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus, uh, that there was nothing about his physical appearance that was attractive. Uh, so, and as I was trying to make this point about how Jesus, there was nothing attractive, I said, listen, I know this offends some of you, but Jesus was ugly. And I, I, should, I, I would have rather been stoned in that moment. Not, not with drugs, with stones, physical stones. Because when I said that, I felt the whole church was just infuriated that I said Jesus wasn't an attractive individual. But what's interesting about this, I, want you to, I do want you to realize this, is that physically, the scripture tells us, that nothing about Jesus was physically attractive. He did not walk around um, with a halo on his head. There was nothing about him to the eye that would someone would say, that is God. That, that's really important to, 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 to get because sometimes we actually um, falsely elevate God's deity in Christ over his humanity. And the Christian doctrine tells us that God is both in Christ fully human, fully God. There was nothing about his external appearance that people looked at. That's why people were confused when he went to his hometown and said, you're not allowed to do these things because we know you. All right, how would you like to uh, be friends with someone one day and then the next minute they're on the front of Forbes magazine, right? Like you see people, I just saw somebody that won the Powerball out in California and the guy's taking a picture covering his face, right? 
Uh, how would you feel if you lived like Jesus 30 years? You knew this guy for 30 years. And up until that point, he did no miracle, nothing. The scripture tells us that he didn't do anything until he was about 30 years old. He's nothing about him. And then out of nowhere, the guy starts walking on water and healing people. Wouldn't you kind of feel like, yo, do you know this whole time? I, I would. Come on. Like, if I was friends with someone until, like, 30 years, I mean, if I just met somebody and they show up, but imagine 30 years, next thing you know, Jesus is just, like, raising the dead. I'd be like, hold on, could you do this all the time? Were you, were you, why were you whole? So I, I want you to see this. There's nothing on the exterior in Christ that made him physically attractive or appealing. That's important to uh, emphasize for this reason. As um, modern-day believers, we have a tendency to think, that it is up to us to uh, beautify, to perfect ourselves, to almost, if you will, um, functionally escape our humanity. Where we think that God can only use us if we somehow truly do become the greatest of all. We look at ourselves and we see the deficiencies, the weakness, the imperfections, the brokenness of ourselves. And we see our excuses, our circumstances, we see the things in our lives, the situations that we can't change. We see our frustration at work, our coworkers that just won't shut up, right? And because of that, we look at it and we say, well, I am somehow cut off from God uh, using me. And what you see here is that Jesus tries to recalibrate their understanding and saying, listen, you have built your perception of the kingdom of God on something that is completely false. You're trying to build this on your ability, Christianity, unlike every other religion, and we mentioned this multiple times, is that it is not built on our work but the finished work of Christ. It is not built on our ability but the ability of God. We have to keep this in our mindset because internally, I know all of us have this conversation. Now, probably not externally. I can't imagine you're sitting down. That's not a good dinner table conversation, right? I think that would be kind of odd. A couple friends, Christian friends, are at Starbucks together you know, drinking your overpriced coffee or whatever. And as you're drinking that, you're like, I just think I'm the greatest disciple amongst us. I just think I am the greatest. I'm probably the most spiritual Christian here. I, I'm just thinking four or five of us, I'm definitely, I'm definitely the top one. I can imagine everybody in, in, the, in the coffee shop would kind of look at you going, that's a really odd conversation to have. Now, I, now, we're probably not arguing with one another, but I would suggest that internally, we still are scaling ourselves, perhaps not uh, in a way of pride, but possibly in a way of false humility. That internally, we're asking, we're having this discussion with ourselves, am I the greatest? And I would suggest to you that Jesus desires to recalibrate your understanding, focusing off of your works and onto his finished work, what Christ has accomplished and in his grace. So Jesus says to them, if any of you would be first. In other words, if you really want to get this whole Christianity thing down, you've got to be last. The paradox of the kingdom. He takes a child and then he says this. Whoever receives such a child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me not, receives not him, sent me, etc. <laughs> Confusion. I almost spoke in tongues there this morning. That was a little, a little messed up. No interpretation needed. We'll just read the Bible. Um, What's interesting about that is this. Jesus tears down a divide that I think is very uh, crucial for you to tear down in your own mind. He tears down this idea of um, secular versus spiritual. He says, whoever receives a child receives me. 
Whoever receives a child, another whoever loves or welcomes or uh, embraces a child receives me. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure about you, but there's a tendency in my mind to view certain things as very spiritual and other things as, and I lack a word for it, but secular, as if God is not involved and or interested in a heightened way. Uh, so this past week, my dad had a relative call him. I was just talking to my mom. I said, Mom, I want to know where I come from. I want to know a family tree because I don't know. I didn't even know my dad had brothers until two days ago. And out of nowhere, his godfather calls my, my dad on the phone, hasn't spoken to me in years, and says, uh, he called my dad Jimmy, which was really interesting. I've never heard anyone call my dad Jimmy in my, his, my whole life. But he said, I'm putting together this family tree. And my dad started talking to me. He said, so, you know, Jimmy, you're a pastor now. That's wild. And uh, he said, you know, I, I practice my religion faithfully. You know, and he started talking. He's like, you know, there's not a lot I agree about, but, I, you know, I practice it faithfully. I've got it under control. And as he started to talk about that, I, I started to see that this, in this, uh, my relative, he, religion is something that is cornered to a specific area of life that is kind of, um, it's got the yellow tape around it. That's religion. You know, we go there once in a while, right? But it's not, it doesn't really affect everything. I would suggest to you that that is not what Christianity is about. So Christianity is not something you do, again. It's something that God has done for you. Let me say it like this. Imagine you have um, a house. And a few, I'll I'll say it like this, this is kind of funny. A few years ago, Jesse and I were moving my couch in. I don't know if everyone's ever heard this story or not. It was a nightmare, though. My blood pressure, you know, my arteries are still recovering from this. We had a couch, though. I was given this couch. I drove up to Boston. My brother gave it to me. I drove up, and on the way back, I tried to get this couch in the house, and I couldn't get it in for anything. Like, have you ever tried to move furniture into a small place that's not meant to move? Ben moved furniture for a while for a living. I think I, think I would die from stress. I can't stand moving my own furniture, let alone anybody's else, anybody else's. But when you're moving furniture, and it almost fits, right? You're like... Well, we got in the, the couch up onto the second floor. I ended up t- trying to rip down molding. I made a huge mess in the house. It barely fit. Now, what happens is that we can view Christianity as in a sense of that we take Christianity and or religion and we try to fit into our house, our space. Here's our home. This is what it looks like. And I'll take it and I'll fit it to where it needs to be. And it's somewhere where I go to when I need it. It's functional. I use it. I would say this, Christianity is, is too big for you to fit in your house. The message of God's kingdom is too big to fit in your house. You actually have to build your life around it. It demands that you have to tear everything down. It's not the couch that you can squeeze through. It's the, it's the couch, if you will. It's the, it's the uh, piece of art that you have to tear down everything to build around. Jesus doesn't have this secular, sacred divide. He doesn't have a divide where, okay, I practice my religion and then the rest of the week, um, that's kind of something that's off. That's the couch. If I need it, I go to it. It's not there. No, Jesus is saying that if you receive a child, he's saying the most simple thing is spiritual. There is no divide. When we go to work, when we're with friends, when we're family, when we're eating food, when we're drinking, whatever we're doing, there is no divide between this is spiritual and this is sacred. And I know that may challenge your perspective, but I would, I would say this, that sacred is realizing, meeting with God, 
There is no divide. And I, I know that may be a concerning feeling to some of us here this morning. Go, well, how does this work? I would suggest to you a couple things, just to prove that point, if you will. Jeremiah says this, do I not, the Lord speaking Jeremiah, do I not fill all of heaven and earth? Scripture tells us that when Christ rose from the dead, he tore the veil in the tabernacle. What was sacred and what was secular, that divide has been torn in two. Now in a church, on a Sunday morning service, it's not that God is um, somehow only present here and absent there. No, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It's here that we gather to celebrate, to meet with him in a unique way. But it's not that he's at this church and the moment we step out, he's not here. There is no, uh, that's a false dichotomy that doesn't exist. Jesus says that if you receive a child, you receive me. Um, Has anyone maybe in a time of worship or communion or whatever, focus meditation, felt the presence of the Lord in a strong, physical, unique way, maybe in a, in a way of warmth or chills or something that you wouldn't typically experience? Just wave at me real quick. In a way that was unique, and you thought, whoa. You know, and you started looking around, like, you know, who's tickling me with a feather or something like that? And you're kind of, that's odd. You know, I'm not a big fan of that. Well, you, know, you feel the presence of the Lord in a unique way. When's the last time you were at work or when you were um, with a child and you felt that presence? I haven't. I mean, I can't remember the last time I was playing kickball and I felt the Holy Spirit touch me. I mean, I personally I haven't. Maybe you have. But Jesus tells us, not that his presence doesn't uniquely touch us, but perhaps in moments like this, we're more aware of what he's doing and in other moments, we're not. I just think that maybe we need to recalibrate our understanding to the point where maybe that it's not that, that God's not out there. Maybe that's, we're not aware that he's out there. Maybe we're so focused on him being in a church that we're not realizing that he's actually, and I don't mean this in a universalist way, but maybe he's actually in the people that we see every week. Jesus shares a story, a parable, and he says that, you know, I was in prison and you didn't visit me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me anything to drink. I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I find that very convicting because I want to meet Jesus on my own terms. I don't want him to meet me on the street. (laughs) I don't want somebody at work who I would disagree with or a friend or the lady in line at the post office. It's 2014 and it takes like 10 hours to get mail in in, uh, postage, right? Stamps.com, that would have been a great plug for that. I don't want Jesus to meet me there. I want to meet him on my terms. I want to go into a building, have an experience with him, and leave. But the Bible doesn't allow me to do that. Why? Because he tells me that if I receive even the smallest child in his name, I'm receiving him. Jesus tears down this secular divide. The disciples still don't get it, though. And in the second part of our text this morning, John said to him, to Jesus, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, this wasn't a confession. John was celebrating. John is like, Jesus, I've got great news. I I, 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 want to show you that I'm the greatest. You know why? Because I stopped somebody that was casting out demons in your name because he wasn't one of us. And Jesus looks at him, and I want you to check the logic of that. I don't know if you've actually ever seen anybody that's truly demonized or demon-possessed. I've had a handful of experiences like that in my life. And it is very interesting to be a part of an exorcism. 
Um, it's really phenomenal. I could tell you some wild stories, actually, that you see it, and you realize in that moment, I don't care if you believe in spiritual things or not, it is insane. It's absolutely crazy to see somebody who is, you know, four and a half foot tall, have this, you know, the strength, Ben, you know which story I'm talking about, has more strength than three or four grown men, small little girl. You're like, that's not normal. You know, to see people throwing up different color vomit that's not normal, to see people writhing like snakes. I mean, it's, it's very odd. It's very uncommon. And if you've ever seen somebody actually be delivered from a demon or be involved in an exorcism, um, hear them speaking in your language when they don't know English, that's a weird one to actually experience. When you see that, my logic would say, I don't care how to get the demon out, get it out. But yet, John, in this moment, his twisted logic actually says, I would rather have a person demonized than free if we're not the ones that free him. I want you to see how insane that is. Um, John is saying that if I don't get a creditor, if you're not a part of us, you're not allowed to do good. Um, That's like a person... And, and, and just, just a uh, poor analogy, but if someone's crossing the street and a car's coming, that's like saying, um, you're not allowed to um, pull them out of the street unless you're part of us. That logic is so broken, so twisted. And Jesus rebukes him and says what? Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able to soon afterwards speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. There's one other story, very quickly. Luke chapter 9. I want you to see how twisted the disciples' focus was on what the kingdom of God is. And I'm going to wrap this up just in a second. It's in this same passage, the Gospel of Luke, verse 51. Scripture tells us a Samaritan village, Luke 9, 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set forward towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. Isn't that a wild passage? They, have you ever felt like you, you've been persecuted for your faith? You know, what, what that actually looks like. I feel like as Americans, if we talk about Jesus and someone doesn't like us, we just get offended. That's not persecution. That's just called, we need a little bit tougher skin. But, you know, like, overseas, there's real persecution. Here we say we're a Christian. Someone's like, I don't like Christians. We're like, I'm persecuted for my faith. Like, you know, imagine you going home and you just turn to your friend and you're like, you know what, let's have a prayer meeting tonight. What are we doing? We're going to call down fire from heaven on them. We're doing it tonight. We're calling down fire from heaven. Let's get together. Like, that's, our, that's April 14th. If you guys want to come out to City Lights, we're calling down fire from heaven on Scranton. They're not receiving our message, so we're just going to call down fire on them. Let's get this thing done with. Well, where, where were they getting that from? That's actually, it's interesting. Some manuscripts, and maybe you'll see it as a note in your Bible. Perhaps your Bible actually has it. The scripture says this, that Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what spirit you're of. Why? Their framework, 
They actually saw this happen in the Old Testament when Elijah with the prophets of Baal, he called down fire on false prophets and they were consumed. And in their mind, they tried to apply an Old Testament understanding into their life. They tried an old covenant, God dealing judgmentally towards a false prophet, and now they're trying to take that and say, okay, how can I deal with this? And Jesus turns and rebukes them and says, you don't know what spirit you're of. Again, God's kingdom is not advanced by soldiers, it's advanced by servants. It's not advanced by um, uh, swords, it's by service. Jesus wants us to see something. He wants us to see that The kingdom of God is not advanced um, as a club. It's not an insulated club where you come and belong to us. No, we are salt and light in the world. I feel like I offended somebody this morning, and I apologize if I did. But we have to tear down this sacred and secular thing because it doesn't help anybody. I'm not saying that God doesn't meet us in a unique, mystical way here But I would say that God is presently active in a church in that way. But for us to look at people outside of this and to wait as if God somehow comes to interrupt us, interrupt our lives, and we give God an hour and a half, our couch fits in the room, God wants to blow that up. He doesn't want to be a thing in your room. He wants you to build your house around him. That everything you do focuses and centers on him. Focused, centered. The Beatitudes, John chapter 5, and I'm wrapping up with this. We have to be careful when we look at the Beatitudes. These are not things that we apply to our life. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs will be the kingdom of God. Blessed are those that mourn, for they'll be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they're going to inherit the earth. We have to be careful that those aren't just characteristics that we just add to our lives and say, okay, I'm a Christian, I need to do these things. I would suggest to you that the Beatitudes aren't just things that we do because we're Christians, but they're actually the way that the kingdom of God is advanced on this earth. The kingdom of God is not coming through a sword, it's coming through service. The disciples were looking How can I be the greatest? How can I execute power? I would suggest this, that every time that you make peace with somebody or that you're merciful towards someone, they experience the kingdom of God in a small slice right now. That means everywhere you go, you have an opportunity to bring the kingdom of God. That when someone does you wrong, you have an opportunity to extend peace Forgiveness. And if they take that, in that moment, they experience a sliver of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not through swords. It's not just through a spiritual experience where God is just going to blow this whole earth up. Thankfully, he's not interested in doing that. God's renewing the world right now. When someone is broken and you mourn with them, they experience the kingdom now. God's kingdom comes through us every day of the week. When you receive a child, you receive Christ. My hope and prayer as we close this morning is that we would stop seeing God only inside of this building. Churches didn't meet in buildings for a few hundred years. I want you to realize that. 
We're so building-centric. We didn't meet in buildings for the first few hundred years. They met in catacombs. That was one of the primary places they met in homes. They did meet in some synagogues, temples, anywhere they could meet, outside places. The church, the Greek word ekklesia, means those that are called out, not those that come together for an hour and a half. You can come together and still not be a part of the church. The called out ones are those that have been called out of this world, not so that we can sit in a holy huddle, but that we can go back into the world, that we can be sent on mission. The kingdom of God is a radically different life. And every time, I I don't know how to make this personal without getting overly personal. I'm going to keep my clothes on, don't worry. When somebody wrongs you, when somebody is at odds with you, somebody has an enemy, when somebody stiffs you, I'm not just talking about just take it on the cheek and just forget about it. No, when you offer forgiveness, they experience something that's rooted in a different world. They experience peace with God. Every day you have that opportunity. Amen? I want to pray for us this morning as we close. Jesus, I pray that we would see service as advancing your kingdom. You told us that when we receive a child, we receive you. And not just you, but the one who sent you, your father. Lord, too often we're, we've got tunnel vision. We're so focused on uh, getting to Sunday or doing a, a 10 or 15 minute Bible reading that we don't see that you're actually actively involved. I think about the disciples this morning They wanted to call down fire from heaven. And you said, you don't know what spirit you're of. Lord, this morning, we want to be of a spirit to advance your kingdom. We don't want to call down fire. Lord, we want to humbly serve our city. Jesus, help us recognize that you are our perfection and that the truth is in this room, none of us are the greatest. We don't have the ability in our own human works to be able to come close to what you want from us. But we receive that gift of righteousness, that gift of grace this morning. Lord, let us be humble servants as we go into our city this week, serving the least of these and advancing your kingdom, not through swords, but by service, Lord. We pray this in your beautiful name, by the power of your spirit. Amen. (laughs) 